Well, boys, looks like you started the fun without me. You're all sick. Every last one of you. We're going to need a bigger gun. What's the matter? You scared of things that go boom? My name is Eric, and sex, horror, vampires, sex, vampires, blood, bite, release the bats, it's Michael Kester. I'm here. That's uh, that's my that's the bat signal for me. If it's those are my winter soldier words. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Who doesn't know the classic release the bats? <laughs> Just one of many select Nick Cave picks. If you've never heard that song, by the way, everybody owes it to themselves. To uh, uh, I think it's it's technically a a song by the Birthday Party, Nick Cave's old old band, but it just sort of like falls apart into him just screaming about bats and vampires and sex vampire and I don't know what kind of drugs they were on back then, but. <laughs> There you have it. What are we doing today on the show? We're going to cover a couple movies. Uh, Nick Cave did the soundtrack to one of them. That's why you're all confused. Oh, yes, that's right. So our theme today... I was wondering why I was screaming about vampires. I thought I did that <laughs> last time on the show. For real, though. <laughs> it would have been appropriate last week, too. Uh, our theme today, before I before I drop the, the movie bomb, is fraternal revenge or decidedly foreign takes of crime genres typically reserved for American cinema. Whoa. We're going to do The Proposition, which is an Australian Western, and we're going to do I'll Sleep When I'm Dead, which is a British New York crime movie, but it's set in Britain. Wow. It's almost as if you were super proud of yourself for pairing that listener pick. I got lucky. Man, um, I'll Sleep When I'm Dead. So The Proposition listener pick uh, was Tony Gleed, who asked us to put this on the show. It's a movie that we both, you and I both knew Mm. we needed to do but we kept kicking the can down the road because we couldn't figure out the right pair yeah and so when it came up we kind of like took a final stab at it and this movie that i watched man remember last week i was talking about watching um repo man when i went to college i watched this this was like a preview this was like a trailer on some fucking dvd that i bought from sam goody and then i went and rented this shit or something deleted scenes yeah dvds uh stood for digital video diskette right you wouldn't fund your token would you <laughs> nobody knows what i'm talking about so i uh yeah, there used to be ads on the DVDs. And, then yeah. you'd, and I know what you were watching, some fucking Clive Owen movie. Probably. Because that's, that was half of your library back then. It was then. probably on Closer, yeah, yeah, or Shoot em Up. You're right, yeah, or Children of Men. You yep. are talking to the one-time president of the American chapter of the Clive Owen fan club, Michael Kester. <laughs> Man, was that a time for cinema, too? Children of yeah. Men? Oh, my God. So uh, those are the two movies. Uh, strap in, get ready, because here we... Oh, no, patreon.com forward slash double feature. That's goddamn right. Um, yeah, a big thanks to Tony Gleed right away, who I believe is Australian. And, uh, and Oh, so this is, just a, this is just a Western to him. Yeah. Like how the <laughs> right. French just call it toast. Yes, yeah, or fries. <laughs> uh, yeah, and he calls it 
Nick Cave's The Proposition. So I just want you to know what headspace uh, he was in for this. But if you go on patreon.com forward slash double feature, you could recommend a movie for us to do. And that's a great reason to show up. But even more important is that without your support, things you love, like hopefully this show, cannot continue on. We're susceptible to that like any other part of this late-stage capitalistic society. Now I'm in the Repo Man show again. I don't know what's going on here. (laughs) We want you to come be a part of this with us. We want to keep doing it, and we want you to do it with us. So go on there, and now is the time. Recommend some movies. We'll pick one of them. We'll put it on the show, and we'll pair it up with something. We're like your, um, you know those uh, evil robots that track all your data, but then also once in a while recommend something useful to you? And now we're calling it Meta. <laughs> yeah, so we're basically like that, but since we, we don't sell uh, any data, we can only recommend one thing to you one time. But it will be good. And today, that'll be I'll Sleep When I'm Dead, and it'll be to Tony Gleed. But anybody who likes the proposition, which is apparently fucking all of you, will also probably dig this movie. It'll be an interesting, interesting in. The proposition, uh, this is a super easy one to logline because it has like one of the most quintessentially Western like plots that I've seen in a Western movie in a long time. Mm-hmm. The plot is the middle brother in a in a in a team of three brothers. Right, because uh, it's three brothers. There's three brothers. Real fuck Mary Kill situation we have going here. <laughs> The middle brother gets told that he can save his younger brother's life by killing his older brother as long as he does it by Christmas. This is like one of those puzzles you have to solve in order right. to get out of a cube or whatever the fuck. How do you find out which, which light switch turns on which light bulb? Right, right. Two brothers always lie and one brother always... I don't know. I don't <laughs> know where I was going with that. <laughs> yes. Okay. So... This ends up being pretty uh, character heavy, I think. There's a lot of arcs to consider in here. Every brother, you know, it's it's a real like fucking Goldilocks of a kind of situation with the three brothers. Mm-hmm. They all have, despite um, being biologically related, they all have very different outlooks on life, very different approaches, and all of that stuff strikes me as super, super Western. Mm-hmm. In so many of the American Westerns that I don't like, we're kind of treated to one person's point of view of society. And I feel like one of the things that's really cool about the proposition is right away, you know, Guy Pierce's character, we could look at his view of the world, but we also have Stanley's view of the world. And I do feel like we alternate between the two of them enough to get those those different kind of, um, I was going to say lay of the land. That sounds like a very Western phrase. These are very atmosphere-heavy movies today, by the way. This is, this is like oh my God, yeah. another theme to the show. So if I just start talking like I'm in some, some sort of uh, weird version of Americana or something, then blame the atmosphere for it. So I like, so I don't know, maybe we'll start with Stanley. I like this picture of this guy who is the sheriff of a town 
And he comes out and he shouts to everybody like, we're going to restore law and order after he just made a pretty, well, a pretty dubious proposition, a pretty dubious the proposition in this shootout, which by the way, this movie opens with this crazy fucking <laughs> shootout that's also just like, I don't know that the movie ever hits a climax as much as it does in the opening shootout where I'm just like, fuck, I don't even know who these people are. Are people going to start dying already? So Stanley comes out and he goes, okay, I'm the marshal here and the law and order will be restored and you, crazy lynch mob who lives in this town, you will all be very happy with the outcome. So just hang in there. So this is something that we will see change as we find out about the deal he struck, as we find out that nobody else knows about the deal, um, that other people feel like he really... You know, we're seeing him when he's already at his wit's end trying to solve this problem and is ready to just make any kind of bargain he can or double cross or what have you. So he comes around a little bit on that. I feel like by the end of the movie, we see a different character in that regard. But I like the other part of Stanley, which is that like, he sort of like goes home and then you know, sobs into Martha's lap. Mm-hmm. She's like really taking care of him. He is a very wounded sort of, um, I don't know that I would necessarily say weak, but yeah, a very wounded person compared to the guy who just sort of like mm-hmm. strolled on the horse through town and was like, yeah, I totally have this. Don't worry about it. We're going to really restore law and order. I think one of the things I like about that is, you know, I like that because I like seeing the, you know, the law have some vulnerability. I also think, of course, about how many instances of American lawmakers or politicians or bodies of authority who we then later found out did the very thing they championed against or probably go home and like sob themselves to sleep at night. So seemed like a very realistic portrayal. Mm -hmm. But then the brothers... How would you size up who these three brothers are? Well, the youngest brother is, uh, he's like the victim. He's the little cutie boy who needs protecting. Um, He's never done a thing wrong in his whole ass life. And he just got mixed up with his older brother on this one job. (laughs) He got mixed up with his other brothers. Yeah. It's sort of like, why do you hang, your, your friends are such a bad influence. Why do you hang out with them? Oh, they're literally your blood relations and yeah. you're part of the three brothers gang and you're the third brother. Okay, I guess <laughs> I guess I see what's going on here. And so so the the middle brother has um he's definitely taken as the protector of his younger brother, but he also fears his older brother and rightly so because his older brother is an absolute nihilist who thinks that at the end of the day, nothing matters but doing whatever you want to do and that society is ruining the freedom that humans otherwise would have had. And here's the thing, man. None of these three guys are wrong, which is crazy. Uh. The thing is, is as the middle brother, he sort of has this... um He's got this mission, right, where he goes to find his older brother and his, I suspect, they don't really explicitly say it, but I suspect that his belief is he's not all bad. There's good in him. Maybe we can like work it out. Mm. You know, maybe there's, maybe, maybe I as his brother can, can convince him that maybe there's more to live for than frivolity and reveling. 
And as the movie progress, and I feel like you know he gets that from his younger brother, right? Mm. His younger brother has this symbolic innocence, so he has he's sort of you know he's the yin and yang of his two brothers. The his younger brother is the super ego, his older brother is the id, and here he is, Freud's fucking child in the middle, <laughs> and he's uh, or is that Carl Jung? I don't remember. <laughs> so he's going. Maybe I can. Maybe I can. I can tame this rampant older brother using the powers of the innocence of my younger brother. And what ends up happening is it turns out his older brother is actually a fuck. And he essentially has to abandon his own understanding of innocence in order to resolve the problem, right? He basically has to go, there isn't an intrinsic innocence to everybody. Not all people are intrinsically good. There isn't good in everyone. And then he has to murder his own brother, but not, before his younger brother is accidentally murdered by, you know, Mr. Mustache who like rides in on a silk horse or whatever the fuck (laughs) and goes, let me show you how to restore order, sir. Yeah. Real existential Western questions (laughs) about the um, real duality of man kind of stuff going on here Mm -hmm. or triality of, Man, I no, guess. it's it's yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I like seeing when we finally meet Arthur. So this oldest brother, everybody wants to, you know, Stanley has managed to arrest the youngest brother, the easy one. He's trying to, um, he's trying to gather some consensus, maybe work his way up a little bit on this. So he starts with the youngest brother, who's easy, trades in the youngest brother for the middle brother. And only in order to get the middle brother to get the oldest brother, because the oldest brother is the hard one. And we hear all these stories about Arthur, the oldest brother. And, you know, just, uh, I don't know what an infamous outlaw he is, what a depraved human he is. He is built up as this larger than life monster. And when we finally meet him, he is more interesting than I'd imagined he would be. Mm -hmm. Here is this guy who, when, you know, when we actually sit down with him, when we, when we get up there after we've heard the story about how he lives his life as a dog and, uh, you know, nobody hears from him and all this crazy stuff. When we finally go up there and sit down with this guy, first of all, they're brothers. So there's no like big, oh my God, I can't believe it's you and what you've become and blah, blah, blah. There's already a familiarity there that it would be really easy to accidentally not have because the movie's built him up so much. The audience suspects expects so much of him. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I feel like the instinct would be to make a big fucking deal when you finally get there and not to be like, oh, hey, brother that I used to see all the fucking time. So these guys aren't meeting for the first time. Mm-hmm. But we get to see him have these relaxed conversations that to him are are casual. And who is this guy? Well, he's well-read. He's poetic. He's poetic, but he's not even overly showy about it. You know, he kind of talks about poetry or about literature. He defines misanthrope in a really, you know, really casual way Mm -hmm. as if he has the information but he's not going out of his way to kind of be like, he's not, uh, 
he's not like building a fucking brand or something. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He's not going, well, I, I want to be perceived as guy who has horse, but also reads. So that's like my whole thing. So I'm going to like spit a little quote for you all the time. Mm-hmm. He just genuinely, when a circumstance comes up and somebody needs to know what a misanthrope is, and these two guys are putting on a show to each other about how little or how much they know, he's ready there with the definition. And it's only later that we actually see this monster that everybody's talked about. When, you know, something happens and everyone springs into action, then we see how he makes calculations. Then we see what he's willing to do to other humans, how he regards human life, or these moments of sort of, uh, you know, we don't immediately see, I don't think, the psychopath in his eyes. Mm-hmm. And then when he's, you know, standing over somebody, making decisions about ending someone's life, he's in any kind of, uh, you know, action situation, battle. That's when we start to get these, the, the, some of the gore in this movie, like the, the fucking harpoon or whatever you want to call it through his uh, chest, the gunshot head explosions. Mm-hmm. There are these moments, not all at Arthur's hands, but all of it, just the brutality of the Western. And this is something that uh, that I also feel like is more modern Westerns are a little more honest about how nasty a lot of this stuff would be. You know, this is a movie that has a little bit more accurate picture of just how gnarly a lot of the, a lot of time in the West would be. Mm-hmm. You know, in America, this is a little bit off the off the fucking beaten path, but um, maybe worth stating. In America, the age of the Western was far before the age of gore. Mm-hmm. So we didn't really show the kind of things in Westerns that would have happened during that time period because those weren't common to movies until decades later that we weren't worried about the censors or even pre and during Hayes Code. So when we start to get movies, especially in the era that you and I really started watching horror movies, you know, I remember talking about Bone Tomahawk on this show Mm -hmm. and just being like, holy fuck, the gore, because (laughs) that movie came out a couple of years after the kind of torture porn 2000s era of horror that that we'd seen so many movies from. So movies weren't afraid to be like, we're going to fucking go for it. And yeah, a lot of that stuff is really nasty. And I think a lot of life during the, you know, I imagine if Westerns had happened in the United States in the early 2000s, instead of fucking 50 years earlier, honestly, how much more interesting that that genre might have been. What do you know about the Nick Cave of it all? Oh, the Nick Cave of it all. Okay, so you know about this a little bit, but I went on this kick at one point to try to figure out Nick Cave. This is an artist I hear all the time, and as we do double feature, you know this happens. Mm-hmm. You hear a person's name over and over, Yeah, and you just start to go, okay, who is this artist? I should probably... Right, figure them out. Or you watch a documentary and you go, "Do I like the Dandy Warhols?" Right, right, exactly. We we've, <laughs> we've all uh, come across this uh, in the show. So if you've been doing the show with us for a while, listening and watching the movies, you've probably had many moments like this where you go, "Oh, do I like this thing, or is this?" I at least want to know more about it. So I don't know. On my my lifelong quest to just learn more things, I got into. 
I started, I didn't really get into music, like good music until I got older mm-hmm. or music that was in any way influential or whatever. I feel like I grew up during a pretty bad time for music. Mm-hmm. Unlike when a lot of people think they, you know, grow up with music. And so a lot of the, uh, you know, the dark wave music that I liked, but only knew a sliver of growing up, I got into that pretty heavy when I moved to California. And LA especially, people, they love post-punk. There's post-punk nights all the time. You can't throw a harpoon at a man on a horse without hitting a couple people along the way who are into dark wave music. Really like pavement. <laughs> so that started moving me beyond The Cure and Susie and the Banshees and into some of, um, some of the earlier stuff. And this is when I found The Birthday Party. And when Nick Cave started showing up more. So I have long since left Los Angeles and with it, anybody who will talk to me about dark wave music, there's not a lot of that uh, in New York or not that I found yet, but patreon.com forward slash double feature, send us a message. Anyways, at some point I watched this movie. There's two Nick Cave movies that I became aware of. One is called 20,000 Days on Earth. I believe it's kind of a uh, semi- biographical, fictional film. You know, it looks like no kidding cinema movie. So I'm not really sure what it is. I haven't seen it yet, but it looks interesting. But the thing I saw is called One More Time with Feeling. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard of this? I have heard of One More Time with Feeling. Yeah, so this is a documentary and it's, it's only from a couple of years ago, but it is following Nick Cave and The Bad Seeds through the creation of this album, Skeleton Tree, through the recording of this album that was mostly written at the time. But the story is pretty fucking crazy. Basically, Nick Cave has a 15-year-old son who one day falls off a cliff and dies. Completely unexpected, obviously. Just a horrible event, and I can only imagine decimating. And this happens while they're writing Skeleton Tree, this album. And so the documentary is about them going in to record Skeleton Tree in the period of time right after his son has died. And there is an insane amount of gravity to the recording of this album, which ends up being, you know, they they end up deciding to do it very stripped down, very just like go in and we'll all record together, or go in and just... Um, you know, it's not as, uh, I don't know, meticulous or, or what have you. It ends up being a little spontaneous. But there's also watching these artists work. And what made Nick Cave so hard to get into for me is it's not really my kind of music. You know, I grew up in the Midwest trying to get away from Americana and mm-hmm. folk and those type of things. So that was never, there's a weird shade of that in, in especially earlier goth music. And I was just never into that. But I was so, it struck me so much the, the kind of weight and gravity to just the grief in this documentary and the sort of, the way of expressing that and dealing with it, it's like the, the artist therapy idea and how that changed these sessions. And then there's also a lot to it where you know he'd already written the lyrics for this album but then his kid dies and his kid dies in this specific way. And uh, a lot of the lyrics seem like, 
I don't really know what the word would be like, prescient, I guess. Yeah. You go to play Skeleton Tree and you go, oh, this is a concept album about his son dying. And it's not. You know, it happens during the same time, but there's, there really is something kind of eerie about it. I mean, it's all coincidental, but very eerie. And they lean into that a little bit, I think, in making the album. Anyways, just if you are interested in Nick Cave and for some reason haven't seen One More Time with Feeling, or if you're, if you're super not interested in Nick Cave, maybe watch One More Time with Feeling because uh, it's really quite an impressive thing. It felt like immediately important when I was watching it. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's part of what broke me down and went, it's time to watch the proposition, you know? <laughs> you could also just pitch it to me and be like, there's a scene where dudes are drinking, they're having a good uh, laugh over the origin of the species and Darwinism. I would be like, oh yeah, that sounds like a pretty funny Western. I should check that out. I have gotten this far in the show and not mentioned the uh, other piece of music, the LP album, I'll Sleep When You're Dead. Mm -hmm. Another thing I have to avoid saying every time this title comes up, but this is not the LP album. This is the movie, I'll Sleep When I'm Dead, which I believe is properly how that phrase goes. Right, which um, is actually a Cure song, speaking of dark wave music and England. So um, I just burst, my, my brain bursts into the Cure song every time anybody mentions this title if only tonight i could sleep when you're dead (laughs) when i'm dead fuck whatever i'll sleep when i'm dead is i mentioned it before but it's this it's this like i mean we've done obscure movies we did that alan wake thing which is like still to this day arguably a film arguably yeah but but uh, but not a netflix made for tv movie so that's right but i think like it's it's bizarre when we get to a movie like I'll Sleep When I'm Dead, which like for all intents and purposes is a movie, right? I mean, I think you can agree with that. But uh-huh, uh, yeah. but had you ever in your life heard of this movie one time? No, no, I hadn't. It's this, it's this, it's this, um, you know, we talk all the time. We're going to talk more about it on the journey uh, coming up in a couple weeks. Um, but we talk a lot about... Um, how much cinema changed as um, home video formats started happening. And we talked, you know, we talked uh, earlier in the show about DVDs, but there's, there's sort of this like thing going on right now that a lot of people like arrow are revisiting the early um, releases of VHS and, and doing remasters and, and really trying to revive movies that were lost to straight to tape Mm. straight to straight to video. But we haven't quite accepted the fact that I'll Sleep When I'm Dead is almost 20 years old and nobody is looking back to the straight-to-DVD movies going, how do we revive these lost gems? Because all of us are collectively in our 30s and 40s going, DVDs are from yesterday. Yeah, and so there's these lost movies that that live. They they're not even in the bins at Walmart for four dollars because not enough of even the DVDs are made. Yeah, you know that stuff makes me crazy. Yeah, I mean, since we talked about that earlier this year, you know, just the concept that there's there's only like a couple thousand movies available on even the biggest streaming platforms. Mm -hmm. You know, you just can't find so many things. But it seems insane, especially, you know, Children of Men is still today. I haven't seen it in a minute now, but it is one of my favorite, all-time favorite movies. 
And I I ribbed you about it, but I was right with you on that Clive Owen kick when he was just in everything and I was showing up <laughs> to see it. So when you say to me that there's a Clive Owen movie with Malcolm McDowell, you know, that I haven't seen, mm-hmm. I'm just like, oh, how soon can we remedy that? Like, it, it <laughs> seems impossible, right? But sure enough, here it is, 2003. It's also a Mike Hodges movie. Mm -hmm. Does the name Mike Hodges mean anything to you? Uh, I know him as the director of I'll Sleep When I'm Dead. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, (laughs) Mike Hodges is, uh, he's definitely somebody that it seems like everybody who has seen I'll Sleep When I'm Dead saw it because they were a diehard fan of his. Mm -hmm. He's an English director and a screenwriter and did um, you know the the ones that I know you would know? Well, one is you know 1980s Flash Gordon. Oh yeah, yep. But the other is Get Carter. Mm-hmm. The original. The original Get Carter. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and you know a couple other movies, Pulp, and uh, I don't know. This is an IMDb. People can go fucking look him up on. Uh, if you clicked on a show that says I'll sleep when I'm dead, my guess is that you know who Mike Hodges is and we don't, <laughs> which is not really how this should go. But but yeah, so you know, there's all these inevitable kind of ties between Get Carter and I'll Sleep When I'm Dead. Mm-hmm. But I think they are very different movies just in their in their kind of plot. Yeah. And what ends up being in their themes. I would have to see, honestly, I'd have to see Get Carter again right next to this to really tell you tonally. But this is another movie with incredible atmosphere. So it's very possible that that, you know, try roll your own double feature at home and see how I'll Sleep When I'm Dead and Get Carter go next to each other. But my, my guess is probably pretty fucking good. Mm-hmm. So there's this guy who is a uh, a kind of... I guess he was a notorious crime figure. I don't know what you call people with. <laughs> hey, Michael, what's that job where you do crime and you're like really well known for it? Oh, where like you a like name for that? eat sushi and don't pay? Repo Man. Do they, do they have uh, mob bosses? Is that, I don't know what the London, I don't, I don't want to get a bunch of Brit mails, <laughs> um, emails from Brits. Yeah, the mafia, uh, mafia boss or the, I don't know. Yeah, you're right. I have no idea. Okay, so Will Graham, who is a mafia-like boss, whatever the fuck the mafia is in London, crime. He's a crime boss. How about that? Mm-hmm. A notorious and feared crime boss. This log line is not going well. <laughs> so this guy's living off in the mountains. He's off the mm-hmm. grid. He doesn't want anything to do with crime anymore. He's just happy being a lumberjack in the forest. Coming back for a new season. <laughs> Sorry, it's it's uh, Dexter's airing. So he's off in the forest living his best lumberjack life and he is forced to return home because something has happened to his brother. So this thing that happens to his brother is pretty interesting to me. We start on his brother. This isn't really a mystery yeah no it's it's pretty it's pretty clear to me yeah like there might be some lingering complications but i i basically think we got it i mean if you you could just tell me hey so vincent cassell uh committed suicide i'd be like he got raped huh yeah it's that's basically how you don't even need to show it in a movie all right so this guy is 
raped, he goes home, he draws a bath, he looks really out of it. And then the next time we see him, the bath is full of blood and he's dead. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if you're expecting a big uh, mysterious turn in this, uh, I mean, don't. But Clive Owen's character is, I don't know that I would say he's not buying it, but he needs to know like what the fuck happened and deal with it. Yeah, this this whole movie is, is very much... Um, both of these movies are very much straight lines. It's not, oh, and now a twist and some entry. It's very much, how did my how did my brother, why did my brother commit suicide? I know he wouldn't do that. So there are two main sources that these themes come from. They come from Clive Owen's character, Will, and they come from his brother, Davey. And I think there's a lot of weird, cool stuff in here that they're talking about. The themes from Will's perspective, I mean, this is like a returning home story for him. And somebody who was part of a, a life of something, but we they got out of it and it's almost like a sequel to a movie that didn't happen, you know? He this is like a king of New York or something. You know, like he had this whole life of crime, that's all over, all of those old glory days of whatever the fuck happened, we don't know, and the good stories and the bad stories. And now he's pulled back into it because there's some event. So there's a returning home aspect to it. But the part of this that I think is great for a movie to talk about is all this stuff going on with Davey ends up being, you know, with Davey we're talking about rape and we're talking about suicide. It's two of the heaviest fucking things a movie can talk about. Mm-hmm. And we're doing it even once Davey, even more so when Davey's out of the picture, he's kind of the inciting incident to talk about these themes. And so Will comes back and Will has to dig through all of his feelings. And uh, the the mystery in the movie is almost like, well, how does Will feel about what happened and how can he piece together this picture of like what went on here? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the rape is, uh, I don't know if the movie's totally on point about this, but I'm really happy that it's at least considerate about it. You know what I mean? Like there's mm-hmm. the, these scenes where he's basically talking to like a trauma counselor about what happens when somebody's raped. And they go through all of these specifics about guilt he might encounter or whether or not he ejaculated while he was raped or like the stuff that's really, uh, it's pretty grisly for the movie to talk about. But regardless of, of whether the movie really gets that right or it's not the movie's job to actually stand in and really be a trauma counselor, I'm just happy that it talks about this stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm happy that it goes, here's a, a uh, when a movie is deep and engages in conversation, I feel like it's a lot less important that it gets it right than it is willing to just kind of open a dialogue because it's been now almost 20 years since this movie came out and our thinking on taboo subjects moves so fast once the taboos melt away. I mean, the list of things you and I even talk about on the show today that are so fundamentally different than the way people talked about them uh, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. 
core concepts of fucking life, man. Yep. Things like uh, gender. We just talked about capitalism on the the fucking prior show. I mean, um, all facets of modern life. You know, any deep look at them seems so much different than it was even a few decades ago on controversial topics, on taboo topics. Mm-hmm. The competency at which we talk about these things or or even develop the right language and nuance to discuss them move so fast. Mm-hmm. So I, I say all this just to say that I don't really know that this movie lands in the right specific places, but it was such a closed subject, so much more so 20 years ago, mm-hmm. that really the gold star is for even just being willing to talk about it. One of the things too that I think that this movie does... Um that this movie does that we've talked about on the show before with a subject of rape revenge movies, which is like a deep sub genre of movies. You're like not supposed to watch now or something. How, how the idea of, um, you know, rape we talked about on the show a while ago. I don't remember which show, but we talked about how, um, rape as a crime feels, uh, it, it feels in some ways worse than murder because you have to keep living afterward. And I think that in in the context of this movie, if you really look at it like a rape revenge movie, it's one of the most vindic like vindicative movies about rape revenge because you have this character who is raped. The rape was so bad that he killed himself. So it puts that into perspective, right? Mm-hmm. It takes away his humanity. It's so bad he'd rather not be alive. And then you have this this avenging angel who is calculated and cold and is, is, is he fully understands the depth of the crime that was committed against his brother. And he understands that rape is punishable by death. And furthermore, there's that scene right at the end with Malcolm McDowell, where he tries to do the big pontificate, like, Oh, you'll never know. But at some point when you least expect it, (laughs) I'll be back. And that's when you, and then he like walks like six steps away and he's like, fuck it. He least expects it right now. Yeah. And he turns around and blows his brains out. And I think like in all of that, it's really the closest swing a movie has ever come in my opinion to showing the gravity of like, uh, of, of how bad rape is and really like what justice for that needs to feel like, because like, cutting dudes dicks off or like, you know, walking around with a shotgun after like 20 guys, fuck you. That doesn't feel like a one-to-one victory the way that this movie sort of does. Yeah. Well, it's one of the things that makes this feel nuanced or, uh, I don't know, like it has a real competency talking about these things is just sort of the way it treats them. It doesn't actually need to say specific things that make me think, you know, we're not reading it, we're watching it. So it is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. You know, addressing uh, something like the right tone ends up being really unique when you compare it to other movies that, you know, if you want to talk about it like a movie like Get Carter, we're also talking about movies like Thriller, Cruel Picture, Mm -hmm. and... um, really the the sum total of rape revenge as a genre it doesn't really discuss things at a very high level mm-hmm. you know it is so full of we're reaching for extreme emotions and what makes it such a fucked up subgenre is that it uses something 
so horrendous to justify an action movie that people already would have shown up for. Right. <laughs> so I feel like those movies, maybe that's just you know my reading of it at the present moment, but it just seems like such a gambit to go, okay, audience, we're going to show you a really nasty scene and then you're going to get in line to watch this chick mow down people left and right. It's sort of like okay, well, what's the really uh, what's the really hard uh, you know kind of racy element you're going to show us? It's like oh, brutal rape. <laughs> <laughs> sort of, sort of seems like you know just so that we can do like John Wick stuff. I mean, right? I, I think you could have just been like, I don't know, just what if the scene is like she just decides one day she wants to? Mm-hmm. I think audiences are probably just as likely to be like, yeah, that's fine, whatever, let's go. If you look at it the other way, if you go, okay, we're gonna we're gonna show a movie that um, we have a movie that's gonna talk about uh, something really hard and then meet it up with with brutality and with violence. And you go, well, what's the really hard part? We're gonna talk about oh, it's rape and suicide. A movie like I'll Sleep When I'm Dead seems to treat that more the way I'd kind of expect that experiment to run, but it <laughs> right. kind of never does. Or they're like, oh, I guess we're going to have to really like sit down and talk about that because it's an important thing to talk about. Mm-hmm. Like That movie, to me, sounds like a movie where somebody needs to sit down with a trauma counselor and various like members of right. you know forensics teams to really get into making sense of what happened here. And in this movie, it does. And that doesn't happen all the time or maybe any other example I could ever fucking think of. But uh, there it is in this movie. All right, we have to get the fuck out of here. Yeah, website is doublefeature.fm. If you want to be like Tony Gleed and make us watch your movie or a movie you like, that's uh, patreon.com forward slash doublefeature. You can also become an executive producer, which allows you to pick movies, but we also say your name at the end of the show. In this particular case, that would be Charles Crawford, Ben Ecker, Brad Parker, and Joachim Vernon. All of you guys need to be writing messages on the Patreon and letting us know what movies you'd like to see on the show. And if you're not on that list, uh, if you're not on the Patreon, you can go on there and anybody who's got access to the back catalog also has access to picking out some movies. So sign up for that tier and uh, write us a little message and we'll pop the movie on the show and pair it up with something. Yeah, because if you don't tell us what to watch, we're going to do things like pair Once Upon a Time in America with Pee-wee's Big Holiday <laughs> and you don't get to complain. All right, look, this is let, let me just cement <laughs> this for a second here. You know, you and I talked, it's been about a year since I've been in New York. I'm loving being in New York. Uh, I'm very happy about it. And I wanted to celebrate doing what we did last year, talk about some New York movies. I thought that'd be great. And I started reaching for movies and I realized, man, I really love 70s and 80s dirty New York movies because I basically just made a list of like a hundred of them. Right. And then I sort of felt like, well, we could do these movies anytime. They're all they're all great movies. They're all easy to pair. There's a list of movies that go with each other right here. And you started talking about some weirder stuff. And then we landed on Pee-wee and we're like, ah, we can't put anything with Pee-wee. That's so difficult. Like what a what a unique vision of a singular film. You know, how do you come up with a thing to pair Pee-wee with? And here we have it. Yeah. So um 
it's not the year-end finale, but it kind of <laughs> feels like it. Very bizarre, uh, and still somehow very New York. All right, so uh, watch my fucking film. All right, bye.